All right, good morning, church, again. Good morning. It has been a little while since I have actually been up here to teach and to preach. We've had missionaries for about a month sharing the good news uh, of just Christ and what Christ is doing in all parts of the world, not just here in Los Angeles. So I am excited uh, to be up here, to be able to share with you. Uh, Today, I'm going to surprise you guys a little bit. We're going to look at the Christmas story today, all right? Yeah, surprise, surprise, but you guys can go ahead. We're going to actually look at the Christmas story from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you can go ahead and open up your your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the wise men during this Gospel uh, as we look at the birth of Christ. And as we look at the story, we we think of the Christmas story, this quaint little uh, Christmas, you know, a bedtime story or Christmas Eve story where we could sit around the fire. Um... And just tell this little story about baby Jesus being born. But as we look at this story, as we look at this presentation as Matthew tells it, we actually see that this is loaded with some profound, right? These these counterintuitive truths that Matthew is going to share with us. And he's going to reveal to us that these, these foundational truths and essence of the gospel. And it answers some of life's deepest questions. Questions like, what about all the people in the world who were not Christians? How does God feel about them? What about all, all the people in the world that have never heard of Jesus, that have never heard of the gospel? How can we believe that there is a God when the world seems to be such a chaotic mess? Right? Where is God when we're facing the death of a loved one? Right? When we see that children are being abused all the time, all over the world, or the one of the thousands of atrocities that are actually taking place right now as we speak, and we ask ourselves, where is God in the midst of all of this? Do you ever ask yourself those questions? I know that I do, and I know that those are questions that I wrestle with, and I search the scriptures, and the answer to these questions, at least the beginning of these answers that are in the Christmas story is told by Matthew in his gospel. So today we're going to look at this. We're going to look at this story. If you go ahead and open up your Bibles to chapter 2, verse 1 of Matthew. And we're going to start to read through this and see if we can answer some of these questions. And verse 1 begins like this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw this star when it arose and have come to worship him. Now first of all, before we continue in this story, I want to clear up some misconceptions that we have of these wise men and of this time taking place. And I'm going to apologize now for screwing up all of your nativity scenes. But we know from Scripture that the wise men and the shepherds were not there at the same time. Right? We know that the the shepherds came soon after his birth. And we know that the wise men saw the star at his birth and they started traveling. It took them several months to get there. So they came several months later. But there is something to seeing the, the, the significance of the birth of Christ and we capture uh, the shepherds and the wise men in the same time and place and it helps uh, uh, tell the significance of the birth of Christ. It would also look really, really funny 
if we had our nativity scene here and then we had like the wise men over on top of Del Taco, that would just be weird. Right? So we don't do that. And as always, we seem to assume, and even if you look at our nativity scene, that there was three wise men. But nowhere in Scripture does it tell us there was three wise men. We think that that assumption has come into place because there were three gifts. There was gold and frankincense and myrrh. And um, so we say, oh, there was three wise men. But nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that. In fact, as we study Scripture, as we study the first century, a school of traveling astrologers like this would likely have included at least a dozen or so of these wise men that would come bearing gifts. This was a caravan that included not only these guys, but often their families and their children and their servants and their donkeys and their animals and their pack animals. So when we think of this caravan, we think more of Prince Ali, right, from Aladdin. We think of these big people coming in. That's as close as I get to singing on Christmas. That's it, right there, right? So that's what we need to think of. Now, probably not as extravagant as the Aladdin production, but we know it was a big group, a big caravan. We know it got the attention of the king. The king saw it was coming in. He saw that there was something, so we know that. So let's just clear up a few of those things. They weren't there with the shepherds. There was probably, there was a a large group. We're not sure of the number, but we are pretty confident it was more than three. So now that we have cleared those things up, who were these wise men? Who, who were they? Is that me? Merry Christmas. See, God was afraid I was going to start singing again. There's seven things that the Lord hates. No. Um, so who were these guys, right? It's obvious that they, they studied the stars. It's obvious that these were astrologers. They studied the heavens. But don't think some, like, crazy psychic. Right? At this time, we want to think more astronomers. We want to think more of the, the forefathers to Galileo, some of the most educated and influential men of their time. Right? Their titles indicate that they were part of the Persian priestly ruling class. They were well-respected, they were very well-educated, they were wealthy, they were leaders in their country and in their community. So then the question comes, well, how did they put all of this stuff together? How did they put this star together? Why did they travel for months to come and see the Messiah? Well, the short answer is God revealed it to them. That is the short answer. But this is fascinating. We're going to spend some time looking at this, but for centuries... Right? For thousands of years, God had been orchestrating this exact moment through the beginning of creation. Then through some world events, he led pagan rulers, right, pagan leaders to travel across the, the known world to come and worship the one true Messiah. And let's look at how this happened. We know that Persia is one of the places where many of the children of Israel were sent into exile. And we know from the book of Daniel that some of God's greatest people were taken from Judah and they were kept among the king's noblemen. Right? They were kept among these wise men of Persia. We know people like Daniel. We have his book. Daniel was the one that was the lion's den, if you remember that story. We also know that there was Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego. Those were the three guys that were thrown into the the fiery service. We know that they were a part of this group. 
And there's no doubt that these youth, they were described in Scripture. And we're talking about the, the youth of the Israelites that were pulled there. They were skillful in all wisdom. They were endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning. And it's because of that that they were kept with these wise men. It's because of that they were kept with these nobles to tell them of the prophecies of their prophets. And there's no question that they shared the prophecies of Moses and of the other prophets with these wise men of the king's court. And we know that the writings of Moses and the prophets are full of prophecies about the birth of the Messiah, about the coming Christ. Ultimately, they talk about Christmas, what we are celebrating this morning. And in fact, there's probably one prophecy that these men were very, very familiar with, and I think it's very relevant to to this event. And it's the story of Balaam that's recorded in Numbers. And when we think of that, we, we naturally start remembering a talk, talking donkey. When we hear Balaam, we're like, oh yeah, that's the guy that had the donkey that talked to him. But we also see that in this, this prophecy, Balaam makes a prophecy about Christmas as he's blessing Israel. So real quick, let me just give you a summary of the incident. We know that one of the king of of Moab, the, the enemy of the Israelites. The Israelites are wandering around for 40 years. They're in the middle of that time, and Moses is leading them. And there's a king of Moab who's threatened by this large group of Israelites that have decided to camp out near his people. So what he does is he goes and he finds a prophet. His name is Balaam, and he hires him, and he tells Balaam, here's what I want you to do. I want you to curse these people. And it's a long story. Balaam says, yes, no, yes, no. They, they actually start bartering on some money and negotiations and then all of a sudden God comes to Balaam in a dream and he says this if the men have come to call you rise go with them but only do what I tell you so a long story short and if you have time I want to encourage you to read it because it's always fun to listen to a talking donkey so if you have time and I don't want to minimize the importance of that but what we see is that instead of cursing Israel Balaam prophesies a blessing over Israel, over the people, his part of his blessing said this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And what he was saying in this prophecy is that there was going to be a king who would come out of Israel, and he would rule the entire world. That he would have Blessings to all the nations of all the earth, and he would reign victoriously. And I have to think that these wise men from Persia may have been familiar with this prophecy and the other ones that were shared with them by Daniel and the other children children of Israel. And we see that when God caused this unusual heavenly activity, and God placed this star in the sky that grabs their attention. These wise men see it and they say, aha, this is it. Right? This is the, the time that those Israel prophets, that those people of God spoke about. There's something different here. There's something strange and this is it. The king is here and off they go. And can you imagine as they go through Jerusalem and they're asking, where's the king? Like, where's the king? And the people say, oh, King Herod's palace. It's right over there. You can just Hang a left on that dirt road, go up the hill, you'll see the palace. And they're like, no, 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 no. We don't want that king. We don't want some earthly puppet. Every, everybody knew. The Romans knew, the Jews knew, the, the, the Persians from another country knew that Herod wasn't really a king. 
He was this puppet king. He wasn't really anything big. And the, 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 the wise men said, no, 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 we don't want that king. We're looking for the king, like the Ohio State University. We want the king. That's who we are looking for. And in Scripture, in verse 3, says that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And I find this interesting. We see the Jewish king assembles his wise men, assembles his... I don't know what to do with this. This is driving me crazy, though. Set it on the table? Then I can't move. I'm going to try to work through this. Um, And so he assembles his own wise men. He assembles his own prophets. And he says, hey, where is this king to be born? They don't have to go look at the Persian stuff. They look at their own stuff. They look at their own prophecies. And from their own prophets, including Isaiah and Micah, Ezekiel, Moses. And the same prophecies these Persian wise men seem to be familiar with that they share with their king. And verse 5 says, they, and it's talking about the king's chief priests and scribes, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and here they're specifically quoting the prophet of Micah, um, and it says this, O you of Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now let's just stop there in this Christmas story. And I just want to look at a few things that Matthew is trying to teach us. So, so far, let's just look at the very first one. And this one should stand out as we talk about the stars, that God uses all of creation to proclaim the gospel. Here, Matthew shows you that that God has pagan sorcerers to be the first that he tells about to come and worship Jesus at his birthday party. He seems to be trying to make a point. We'll get to that in just a, a few minutes. But Jesus commands the stars to lead him there. And we know that God controls the heavens, and we know he speaks through donkeys, and he orchestrates governments, and there's not one square inch of this entire universe of all of creation that God does not have sovereignty over, that God does not have complete and total control of. And usually, when we think of serving God, we think of this activity, we think of that we have to do much, that we have to give much to him. And I'm going to be honest with you, there is time for that. I was once told that we should have calloused knees from praying and calloused hands from serving. But there's also a time to just sit and be still and reflect on who God is. Reflect on the fact that God is going to accomplish His purposes. 
He's not dependent on anyone. He's not dependent on any of us to accomplish them for him. Nothing and no one can stand in his way. And if he needs to rearrange the universe, if he needs to make a natural phenomenon come to reveal himself to you, he has shown he will do that. He will do that. And the first Christmas is an example of him doing that. And an example for us to stop and reflect on how the heavens proclaim the glory of God. And I want to encourage you this morning that if, if you don't know God, if you don't know Him as your Savior, if you don't know Him as the God of the universe, that you take some time this morning, that you take some time this week, that you look around and you look at all of creation. And Scripture tells us that all of creation proclaims His glory. Right? That you would get lost in the wonder of His glory. Right? That His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in his creation. And so I would encourage you this season, if you don't know Christ, that you would take time to look at his creation and see his glory. And then if you are a believer, then I think this is a good time that we look into our hearts and we say, well, how is God using you? You're part of his creation. How is God using you to tell his story? This is a great question. We always have this question that we ask each other, what about all of those people that have never heard of the gospel? Well, let me tell you something, church. As the church, as the bride of Christ, guess what your job is? To go tell people the gospel. To go tell people the gospel. And I know, I know not everyone is called to go overseas. I know not everyone is called to go across deserts like those wise men had to do. You don't have to. You don't have to. Don't fall for that. You have to go some distant land to share the good news of Jesus. Some people are called to just go to their neighbors, to just share the gospel with their friends, to share the gospel with their family, to share the gospel with those people in their community. Let's do. This is driving me nuts. Do we have another mic, or is this it? I can't. It's Christmas. We're gonna just kind of dream big here for just a little minute. It's Christmas. We can we can dream big, All right? Let's just ask ourselves the question: That what if God made this place, and He called it the entertainment capital of the world and every single day thousands and thousands and thousands of stories were being created and produced and sent to all parts of the world thousands of stories every day what what if god made a place so beautiful that people came from all of the all over the world not just to visit it right not just to visit it, but they came and they said, oh, this place is beautiful, and they moved here. They picked up and they lived here to visit these beaches, <clears throat> take pictures, and the next thing we know, they're living in the area. And I can think of two situations. One, we just had a national convention here in Anaheim, and I was talking with a friend, never been to California in the world. He thinks California is full of a whole bunch of crazy people, never any interest. He's from Missouri. I'm never going to California. He comes to national convention. He said, I went to, I think it was La Jolla, uh, not La Jolla. It was a beach in Orange County. I went to a beach, had perfect weather. It wasn't hot. It was in the middle of June. And he goes, I think I want to move here. (laughs) I love this place. Here for four days. What if God created a, a place that led the world in education? Led the world in medical advances where people from all over the world traveled 
for educational opportunities and medical treatments to the single place. It's Christmas. Let's think really big. What if you took all those places and just made it into one place? And let's get crazy. It's God's place. He said, hey, we're going to call this place the City of Angels. And then he made you a resident. Right? And you're thinking, wait a minute. All I have to do is go and talk to my neighbors. My, my neighbors are, many of them never heard of the gospel. Right? My friends, many of them have never heard the gospel. And the longer that we're here, <coughs> the longer that we're here, guess what? We start to have family members that have never heard the gospel. That have never, ever heard the gospel. There would be endless opportunities for us to share the gospel in our own community, in our own neighborhoods, and it would reach all parts of the world. Gosh, that would be amazing. But I don't know if God would ever or if God could do something like that. Gosh, just think. God gave you, if he made it that easy for you to share the gospel with the world. Hmm. Second, second thing that Matthew teaches us about the gospel is that the gospel is for all nations. Man, I'm sorry, people, but if you're online, we're about to lose uh, audio. We don't have another mic, Donnie? Okay. Here's the deal. Then I start doing this, and then you can't hear me. Um, um, man, you guys don't know this, but I got issues. So when I hold a handheld, it brings all those issues to light. I'm not even Italian, and I do this. Yeah. Hey, here we go. Right? Let's get back to the important thing. Let's get back to the gospel. Right? The, the gospel is the most ingl- inclusive not exclusive, right? The world's going to tell you it's exclusive. It's the most inclusive worldview ever put forth. It brings together all races. It brings together the rich and the poor, the educated and the ignorant, the righteous, the unrighteous, because it says that all mankind has problems. And it all comes from the same problem. It all comes from sin. And all mankind deals with this one problem. And there is one answer. It is Jesus. Jesus answers this for all mankind. Each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and while they tell the same story, they each have their own intended audience. Matthew, when we read this, we, we, we take into mind that Matthew's intended audience was the Jews. And his purpose is to show the Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah and the King, that he was the ones that the prophets talked about. Often when you read through Matthew, you see, and the prophets said, and it was prophesized as the prophet said and what he's doing is he's taking his readers back to the Jewish prophets they were a Jewish audience but interestingly when we look at Matthew the first people that Matthew says came to worship the Messiah are these pagan wise men that's no accident that is very intentional don't don't miss that these were these were the wrong people to come and worship the Messiah according to the Jews Right, in the eyes of the Jews, both the wise men, these pagan philosophers, and the shepherds that Luke talks about, these uneducated rednecks that were mentioned in Luke's account, were the wrong people to come and worship the Messiah. Right? They, the Messiah was coming for them, for these few select people. And you realize how crazy it is that Matthew, trying to reach Jews, trying to tell them about this Messiah, starts off with, hey, guess what? You weren't the first to come worship him. 
Right? The pagan philosophers were the first that came long before you did. But on Christmas, right from the time that Christ entered the world, God showed that he loved the world. Right? He loved everyone. That in Christ, the Jewish Pharisee, the, the pagan philosopher, the lowly shepherd, the broken prostitute, they sit down together because God's love for them is not found in who they are. God's love for them is found in who God is. God's love for them is not in what they have or haven't done. God's love for them is shown through what Christ has done for them. Not by their works or their wisdom or their wealth, but God's grace for them. God's grace for me, God's grace for us is by his grace. And that's it. It is simply by his grace. The gospel turns the world upside down. Right, it makes the, the basis of our acceptance. Nothing else in the world does this. Right, we are accepted by who we are, what we've done, what position we have, where we're from, what time we're. The gospel throws all of that out the window, and it says our acceptance before God is his grace, not our merits, not who we are. Our acceptance before God comes strictly from his grace. That's the, the core of the gospel message. And we see in this message that Jesus has come for for all nations, for all people. And sometimes we think God is for somebody else. Well, guess what? If you're in here and you're you're listening to me, you are all people. right? You fall underneath all people. You fall underneath all nations. Christ came to be your Savior. Christ came for you. We celebrate Christmas because despite who I am, despite what I have done, Jesus came Because he loved me because of who he is, not because of anything I have done. This is is what the gospel is built on when we talk about grace of Jesus. The gospel is for everyone. It's for all nations, all ethnic groups, all people. And some of you need to hear this this morning. It's for you. It's just for you. It's so easy to look at other people and say, they got it together. Jesus came for them. I can't even use a stupid microphone. This is my job, right? Jesus came for me. We look at other people and we start comparing all of our faults and think that they have it together. But you need to hear this this Christmas. Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you. You're all messed up. Jesus knows that. That's why he came. He came for you. He loves you. And then we say, well, I'm not a a Christian. How does Christ feel? How does God feel about non-Christians? Some of you are, are asking that right now. You're like, I, I, don't, I don't believe. How does Christ feel about me? And if you are a Christian, guess what? There was a time when you weren't. Right? There was a time when you asked that question. How does God feel about non-Christians? There's this passage in the Bible. Maybe you've heard of it. It's kind of a popular one. And it begins like this. For God so loved the world. Right? So what did God do? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son... That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. This message is for everyone. And Matthew, as we read this gospel and as we read through this book, we see that the gospel shows that the nations came to the Messiah. We see these pagan Persians come to the Messiah. And it ends up by telling us to go and tell the nations about the Messiah. 
So Matthew starts off his book by saying, hey, they, they came to see the Messiah. And then he ends his book by telling you, by telling believers, you need to go and tell them about the Messiah. It says this, it's painted on our wall. This is an essential part of the gospel. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? Of all nations. Right? Not, not just your friends, not just the people like you, but of all nations, all people, everyone. The gospel is for all nations and every people group and every family and every person, including you. The gospel is for you. Okay, and there's one more thing as we wrap this up. There's just one more thing that this teaches us, but we have to go back to our text to see this. We're going to begin in verse 12. And it says, And being warned in a dream, it's talking about the wise men, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to go their own country by another way. Now, we have to understand this. If you don't know who Herod is, he's a pretty evil guy. He really liked being in power, and when he was an anointed king, he said, hey, we're going to have a peace party, and he invited all the enemies, all the people vying for the king, said, hey, we're all going to be friends. I'm going to throw a party. Everybody come here so we can be friends. It was a peace party, and he invites them all there, and then he kills them all. That's the way he did business, right? Then he thought, a couple years later, he thought his wife was trying to conspire against him, so he killed her. And then a few years later, guess what? He thinks his kids are starting to conspire against him. That they're threatening him for the kingdom. It's not time for them to rule. So he has them killed. And the emperor of Rome, uh, Augustus, he once made this famous statement. It is better to be Herod's sow than to be his child. Right? You have a better chance of living if you're an animal pig living in the king's house than you do if you are his son. So this guy is not a nice guy. His reputation precedes him. And these wise men, they're, they're not dummy. They're wise men. It's in their title. Right? And so they're not going to go share Jesus' location with the king. So they go another way. And as we pick up in verse 13, it says this. And now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And all the regions who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. It says this in verse 18, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is not how we expect to end the Christmas story. This is not a part of the Christmas story. The story ends in tragedy. And we see Herod that realizing that the, the wise men are not going to come back and show him where the baby is so he can go kill him, he just orders a massacre. And he orders to kill all baby boys under the age of two. And it's hard to imagine anything worse for those families. It's hard to imagine these children that were being killed. But Matthew quotes a very important verse. 
He quotes this passage from, from Jeremiah. It speaks directly to the Jews, and it brings us hope in the midst of tragedy. In verse 18, we read, it says, A, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentations, and Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And this is a, a prophecy from Jeremiah. It's found in chapter 31. And what Jeremiah is doing is he's offering hope to the children, uh, to the families that have been exiled, that have been taken from Judah. In 605, the, the Babylon, 605 BC, the Babylonians had come and they attacked Jerusalem. They leveled the city, they burnt the city, and they took a bunch of the Jews captives and they, they held them place, they held them captive in this place just north of Jerusalem. And that place was called Ramah. And this is what Jeremiah is speaking of. And it was at this place that these families were sold into slavery. Families were torn apart, and can you imagine as a parent that you are being held captive and your kids are taken from you and sold to another family and you are to never see them again? If you are a parent, this is one of the the worst things that you could imagine, that you could ever dream of, a horrible, horrible fear. And in the midst of this unspeakable pain, Jeremiah speaks to these parents and he says, you know, one day your voice will, will cease its weeping and your, your eyes will cease from its tears. He said, your children shall come back from the land of the enemy and there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Jeremiah tells these people, hey, the Lord is telling you, your people will come back, your children will come back and there will be hope. But we see that that's a prophecy for Christmas. It is that hope is fulfilled on Christmas Day, not only for them, but for us. And Jeremiah said that God is going to save his people, and he's going to do it by sending a new victorious king who will deliver us from our bondage to sin and return us from our exile. That God's going to send a king who's going to take us from captivity and bring us home. He's going to bring us to our father. And Matthew is showing his readers, that Jesus is that king. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the savior who will rescue his people. He will heal broken hearts and establish peace in their minds and restore hope in their lives. And we will come home and call God Abba, Father. See, we see here in this story that the gospel is God's answer to all senseless evil and to my pain. It is through his son, it is through Jesus Christ that chains will be broken. For his son appears and the soul seeks joy. The soul feels warmth and it it dances with joy, just the name of Jesus. We are his and we are loved by the almighty. And we know this simply because he sent his son. We know this because of Christmas morning. We know this because God sent his son to save us. And it's Christmas morning that we celebrate Jesus coming to save us. Right? It was the first Christmas morning that tells us freedom will be coming. It is the first Christmas morning that hope was made tangible. That hope had skin that you could feel and you can touch. It was that first Christmas morning that assured us that brokenness and sorrow and tr- all tragedy will be defeated once and for all. A new king was born. A king who will conquer death. 
a new king who will heal our hearts, and a new king who will restore righteousness, a new king who will right every wrong, a new king who will rule in perfect mercy and perfect justice, a king who would reverse the curse that has faced all of mankind, a new king that would bring back the children from exile, a new king that would make all sad things untrue. The good news as we look at this Christmas story, the good news as we read through this story is that Herod doesn't get the last word. Right? Herod is not the end of the Christmas story. As we read through scripture, we see the new king has the final say. The Herods of the world don't win. The burden of guilt does not get the last word. The embarrassment of shame does not get the last word. The oppression of fear does not get the last word. The broken relationship, the cancer, the divorce, the addiction, the loneliness, the emptiness, none of them get the last word. The king has come, the prince of peace has come, and Jesus has the final word in our lives. Christmas shows us that that the Herods of the world don't get the last words in our life. Jesus does. And God is going to take all of the things that Herod intended for evil and overturn them for good. And the joy of the moment will cause the memory of the painful past to dissipate like a wisp of smoke. And scripture says that the pain will go away like a woman in labor forgets her pain as soon as the baby is born. Death is swallowed up in victory. And it's because of Jesus that we have hope. Revelations, it says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death and no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And it is the birth of Jesus that had those passed away. We see that chains will be broken. And so Christmas reminds us that there is hope in the midst of hurt and life in the midst of death. And that hope and that life is called Jesus. It is because of Jesus that the weary world can find joy. It's because of Jesus that the weary world finds peace. It's because of Jesus that the weary world can rejoice. It's because the victorious king, the mighty savior, and the prince of peace has come. And his name is Jesus. It is the story that tells us that Jesus is the only answer to all senseless evil, that he's the answer to my pain, that he's the answer to your pain. Evolution and scientism, they don't cut it here. They don't answer those questions. The Bible tells us, the gospel tells us that the world is the way it is because of the curse of sin. But a new king has been born who's going to bring all that to an end. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to burr, he's going to bore the cross, the, the, the curse of sin. In our place, and one day very soon, he's going to put everything right again and bring all the end to all of suffering. And it is Christmas that we see this begin. You see, have you gotten the message of Christmas? Christmas is not about a baby. Christmas is about a victorious king. Christmas is about a savior. Christmas is about your savior. Christmas is about Jesus who came for you. Christmas is about God who sent his son for you. No matter who you are or what you have done, 
It is God's love for you that he sent his son and by his grace offers you a life full of hope and peace and joy as you walk with him, as you walk with your father, as you walk with Jesus. The wise men and shepherds, they show you that there's no such thing as the right kind of person. There's no single person that God was looking for that exact person. God made you and Jesus came to you. He came because of who he is, and he meets you exactly where you are. He, he knows you're a mess. He looks at the world. He knows the world is crazy. That is why he came. He came to heal. He came to restore life. He came to save you. For all the reasons that we question, is there a God, Jesus says, yes, I'm him. That's why I'm here. That's why I came. Christmas is not just about a, uh, is about a Savior who has been born, who will rescue from your sin, who will draw you. Listen to this. It is Christ who will draw you. As we read in Ephesians, it is God who will draw you to him. It is God who will draw you near to him. And he has a gift for everyone. For all who believe in him, he has the, the gift of life. And he has a gift for all to receive no matter who you are or where you came from, no matter what you've done, Christ has a gift for you, and it's called life. And if you do nothing else this Christmas, if you don't know Christ, if you do nothing else, if you would just fall on your knees and pray and seek him and worship him and accept his grace, it's the, the greatest gift ever given. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we celebrate today. And if you are a believer, if you are a believer, why not on Christmas share the good news of Christ and let others know that Christ came for them, that Christ loves them, that Christ came for them, that Christ is their Savior as well. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your Son. We thank you for this time that we celebrate when you penetrated human history and sent your son that you manifested the word into a person that not only could we see the word not only could we understand the teachings not only could we see the the prophecies come true but that you sent your son to right every wrong to fix every sin to restore every relationship, to heal every broken heart, that you showed your love for us and that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to earth to live a life we couldn't live and to die a death we couldn't die simply because you loved us. Lord, we love you. We just would pray that today, that this day would not be made about anything but about you and your glory. We pray that as we celebrate with families, as we gather with our friends and our families, as we open up gifts, that our heart would be stirred to share the glory of your son, Jesus. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's precious and holy and magnificent name of Jesus that we ask all these things. And all of the church said, amen.